welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Andrew Jensen Kerr, Lecturer of Legal English and Assistant Director for the Language Center at Georgetown University Law Center. We will discuss his article, The Perfect Opinion, which will be published in the Washington University Jurisprudence Review. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Uh, thanks, Brian. Okay, so I'm I'm so glad that we connected and that I can have you on the show. I came across your paper uh, like a month or a month and a half ago, maybe more, on my SSRN feed, and it's like I had to open it. It had like the the greatest title and the funniest abstract, and I was not disappointed when I read it. It's a really awesome piece. So congratulations. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> so I, I wonder if you could start by kind of talking about your project in relation to the prior literature, because as you recognize in the piece, right, there, there is sort of a body of scholarship on sort of ranking judicial opinions. I mean, we lawyers love, love ranking things. So what have other scholars done and sort of how is your approach different from, from what they did in the past? Sure. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the prompt, Brian. So I, I think that this was sort of a project that I didn't go into super intentionally. And, and I was kind of just originally thinking that this could sort of be a kind of a descriptive survey. And my, my guiding question at first was the, what is your favorite judge's favorite opinion? So kind of, you know, this, I think, a you know, perennial idea of you know, kind of surveying who do we think is the, the best at doing something and what is their favorite thing in this, in this sort of uh, genre. And um, as I started kind of thinking more about this project, you know, I, 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 I was thinking about how can I, you know, situate this within some adjacent conversations to give it more of a, of a scholarly appeal. And so I think that historically, you know, this has been sort of an aesthetic or qualitative question where, you know, typically you think about the the canon, the big names um, in our in our um, jurisprudential history, and so there's the the famous study by Judge Posner about twenty or thirty years ago, where he he was looking specifically at Cardozo, um, but in his survey of, of what made Cardozo great, he kind of compared him to other other icons from the um, from Supreme Court history, and then I think in maybe more recent decades, this has become maybe not taboo, but sort of at least a little bit less rigorous. And so there's a, there's a line of scholarship from kind of empirical political science, um, people like uh, um, Professor Spriggs at, at WashU who have been thinking about how can we use citation counts as evidence of greatness or even possibly perfection. And so um, this is sort of um, the starting point that I uh, kind of use to sort of situate this. And then uh, I guess one other sort of important um, paper to mention, Brian, is, is uh, Professors Balkan and Levinson, maybe 20, 20 years ago, published a, a piece for the Harvard Law Review where they kind of commented on the, the canon and constitutional law. So uh, kind of a curious sort of insight there is, is that, uh, you know, I think for other disciplines, whether literature or, or other parts of the humanities, I think that kind of implicit in, in what people teach um, is a question of what do you like the most? You know, I, I think that when you're thinking about great films or great literature, sort of, you know, 
uh, implied in your in your course design is you know do we like these novels do we like these poems do we like these films and in, in law I don't know if we ask ourselves this question very often because an opinion could be important just because it's doctrine is consequential or for historical reasons and so um, again this is sort of a not a not a common strain of legal thinking but there's been a few sort of adjacent conversations about how we might think about likability, what makes something good, and maybe what makes something perfect, even if this is sort of a, an aesthetic way of thinking about law, which isn't necessarily a, a vogue way to think about it anymore. Yeah, well, so one of the things I really liked was like, as you say, there's sort of like this historical body of work kind of thinking about a judicial opinions almost from an aesthetic standpoint and then another body of scholarship sort of as you say thinking about them from a much more sort of quantitative sort of analytic standpoint and in a way your paper kind of combines the two as it were i mean it's like almost like an analytic look at the aesthetic qualities of a judicial opinion. So, so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the framework or the methodology that, that you use for kind of investigating and categorizing the kind of qualities that we might look to in identifying what makes an opinion great, but also like what makes us like or dislike it. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a kind of an, an empirical, amateur empirical survey in some ways. And, and a lot of it is just Googling and doing Westlaw and other um, uh, data catalog searches for words like favorite and like, and just kind of seeing sort of what pops up. And so I tried to, it was sort of a combination of, of my own judgment of what makes another jurist important, whether a judge or, or a scholar, and then trying to sort of triangulate word choices that they might use to kind of suggest what they like the most. And so there is this kind of, you know, kind of a, a personalized approach to, to research that I use to try to just kind of find what these opinions are. And then once I located them, I tried to collate them into different categories. And so in the, in the paper, I kind of begin with two, two categories that are maybe interesting, but don't really um, inform my theorizing as much. And so uh, the first two categories I kind of categorize are are just sort of the straightforward conventional majority opinion that uses case law that looks like any other judicial opinion but happens to be a favorite judge's favorite opinion. Um, my other category are are, are um, um, opinions that uh, are fun, and so uh, some listeners might be familiar that West Publishing put out a book called. Blackie the Talking Cat and other favorite judicial opinions, and uh, I think in, in the 1990s, and it's just sort of these uh, these fun opinions because the subject matter is so peculiar or strange, and there's something almost kind of silly or droll about it. And then um, my other two categories that I that I collated were um, um, opinions that are um, dissenting opinions or concurrences, and those often contain very few citations. And then I, I conclude with my, uh, my ideal of perfection kind of echoing Ronald Dworkin, the Herculean opinions. And so these are the majority opinions that are both um, some important people's favorite opinions, but also those that cite to nothing or almost nothing that are majority opinions. And so that's sort of the rough kind of uh, the rough categories that I use. So you use judges as your sort of 
data filter. Um, you know, why judges? I mean, it seems to make sense, but sort of what with your thinking in looking to judges as opposed to say like academics, right? Because our opinions are super important. Um, and, and, um, and, 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 what did you find? I mean, when you started looking at what judges had to say about opinions, what they liked or disliked, or what they seemed to find kind of most appealing, or what they themselves sort of strived for in an opinion, what did you what did you find? Yeah, no, I mean, there was sort of a happy coincidence here between how I began my research and the, and the results here. So I, I chose judges just because they're sort of a discrete category and. Um, and, uh, you know, this kind of echoing back this kind of, you know, what's your favorite rapper's favorite rapper, your favorite painter's favorite painter, your favorite judge's favorite opinion. So just sort of the kind of the resonance there. And, and you know, I, I guess part of the this kind of is, is moving forward with some of the insight. But, you know, the thing that we kind of assume is that judges, especially common law judges in the U.S. are sort of conditioned and kind of wired to think in terms of precedent you know, and, and to cite to, to, to prior case law because they've, you know, just been kind of wired into thinking about stare decisis and the value of stability and consistency. And just because there's sort of a, a good manners thing where you'd want to cite to your colleague and, and uh, you know, just kind of continue that sort of uh, the, the line of thinking there. And, uh, you know, one of the peculiar kind of um, insights of, of this project was that, you know, a lot of these common law judges list or identify their favorites as being non-authoritative opinions, whether dissents or concurrences, or these, uh, these majority opinions that cite to no cases or few cases. And so, you know, it's just sort of, you know, what does this mean for our common law culture if, uh, if judges who we think are, you know, typified and distinguished by their love of precedent actually might not love precedent that much, or at least in this special universe of cases where they where they select these. And so that was sort of a, that was sort of um, a, a, a sort of a, you know, a useful um, coincidence for my research as far as scholars, you know, I, so I do try to kind of supplement a little bit of the theorizing here by citing to a few stylists and scholars. I think, you know, part of it was that I, I, uh, I wanted to kind of rely on, on content and information that was already out there. And so I had some suggestions about whether I should kind of survey colleagues and, and just other, other scholars. But I, I was a little bit um, anxious to kind of open that Pandora's box and just sort of, you know, put people on notice that I might be, that I might be using, using them as fodder for my project. And so I kind of just like the sort of organic element of seeing what judges had, had already identified previously. <laughs> so reading the paper and kind of looking at the data that you gathered, I, I was struck by the way in which, you know, some of the opinions that judges mentioned were ones that were kind of iconic and that I was, you know, immediately familiar with. I could almost like recite lines from from some of the opinions, like, you know, Holmes's dissent in Lochner, you know, for example. I mean, it, it just really does stick with you. Um, but a lot of the other ones were like kind of self-citations from judges or in some cases opinions that were sort of like, maybe I heard of that one, but, you know, I can't place it 
off off the top of my head. I mean, were there things that sort of surprised you or struck you as you were gathering the data or sort of patterns you started to see about what opinions judges were choosing, why they were choosing them, and sort of what appealed maybe to different judges or or different kinds of judges? Yeah, no, there there was certainly, um, yeah, there were certainly some curious findings and you know, there are sort of the iconic cases that, that you see. And even those, though, were, were interesting just to the extent that, you know, you mentioned um, um, the Holmes case I, I write about, um, you know, uh, both Abrams that I, that I mentioned in, in Lochner, he's writing in dissent. So um, to the extent that might be, be intriguing that he's in dissent there. But, um, you know, I think, you know, one, one thing that you might ask yourself is, you know, how organic or spontaneous are these judges being? Like, so for example, you know, there are, there are maybe sort of the uh, um, maybe uh, unexpected citations from ju- judges based on their politics, um, whether it's, a, you know, more of a conservative justice citing to, you know, a case that represents some a kind of progressive ideal. Um, and then there's also, as you mentioned, just sort of these cases that are just sort of unknown or, or not really remembered. And so, for example, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, I think that he, from my memory, he, I didn't write about it because it, it didn't um, pop up on my, um, my third and fourth category that I theorized much, most about. But I think that he chose an admiralty case that I had never heard of. And I was um, sort of, I think, a Dave Su- a Suter case from the early 90s that he, he selected. And then um, certainly the, the most um, charming and sort of surreal case that I write about is the is the Levesque versus Anchor Motor Freight case um, self-selected by Judge Bruce Celia from the First Circuit. And so that's a really just a, a hidden gem. And I, if I have a, you know, any goal for this paper beyond my own theoretical contribution, I hope it's just that readers become familiar with this Celia case because really it's a, a gem that I think has been until now sort of overlooked. Yeah. Okay. So, so I totally want you to describe that case and explain why it's interesting to listeners, especially because it it intersects so beautifully with a paper and interview I did a few weeks ago with uh, Alexa Chu and Kevin Bernardo on citation stickiness, where you know they did kind of an empirical counting study of when judges were and weren't taking citations from the briefs that the lawyers filed. And they stipulated that in their study, they, they intentionally excluded cases that didn't cite any opinions whatsoever, one of which was a Posner case. And the Celia case, or the Celia opinion that you mentioned falls into the same category. So, I mean, and I love it too. It's just amazing. And I wonder if you could describe it just briefly. Sure, yeah, I'd love to. So this is a... Um... This is actually early in his tenure as a First Circuit judge. I think it's from the early to mid-80s. And uh, it's, as you described, a sort of run-of-the-mill run of negligence case where I think that they're at an auto dealership or I think it's a dealership in Rhode Island. And they have, you know, one of those uh, double-decker um, semi-tractor trailers that you see on the interstate where there's new cars um, lined up on on, on both both racks of the, of, the, of the truck. And I think that they're, they they have it um they're unloading the cars and so they put the ramp behind it and for whatever reason this is the unfortunate time that the the car comes off too quickly or um comes off when it's not supposed to 
And I think that one of the other coworkers suffers not a terrible injury, but he's obviously injured by the by the car. And it goes to appeal to Judge Celia. And um, you know, we can never really know for sure what the what the decision was at the lower court and um exactly what is informing Judge Celia's overall um uh, decision here that the that the trial court decision stands that there is in fact no negligence on the part of the dealership or the coworker, but uh, it's a it, it raises sort of questions of both um, negligence, uh, sort of the the role of the jury and the role of a judge in overseeing a a, a jury in a, in a negligence case like this one. So um, that's sort of the the prompt for his for his opinion. Yeah, well, one of the things I loved about it as well is like not only is the opinion citationless, but it also has this incredibly baroque language in it as well. Well, yeah, no, it's it's um it's obvious that Judge Celia knows what he's doing, and so um you know this kind of goes to my paper a little bit that is as 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 judges you know we can assume that when they decide not to cite something that this is intentional and that it's not an accident. I don't think any judge writes their opinion and then afterwards she thinks, oh, I forgot to include a, a case here or that was an accident that, that, that didn't happen. And I think uh, in the same way here, Judge Celia is certainly aware of the Baroque word choices that he uses. And so it's, uh, it's sort of unclear, you know, to what extent is, is, this a, is this a joke? Is, you know, is this sort of an inside joke with himself where he's sort of, you know, is he not expecting anyone to read this ever? And is he just sort of, you know, kind of placing this as a time bomb within Westlaw so people like me or or the two of us can read this 30 years later and joke about it? Or is this like, a, is he is he trying to bring attention to himself and, you know, speak to his other colleagues and say, look what you're making me do. You know, you're making me waste, you know, important judicial resources to think about this case when I could be doing something else. And so, it's uh, it's it's obvious he's using funny language, and it's unclear whether he's trying to bring attention to himself or whether he just thinks no one's ever going to read this, and so I might as well be funny or some combination of the two. Yeah. So, so one thing that that struck me reading the paper was like, what does the sort of citationless, non-precedential quality of the sort of ideal? opinion from a judge's perspective say to us about sort of the role of citations and a precedent and 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 sort of the role of the judge more broadly you know from a kind of legal realist perspective i mean like what does it tell us about what judges think they're doing and maybe what they're actually doing yeah, you know, this is a this is a deep question, and you know, so so part of the paper, you know, thinks a little bit about like what's the meaning of citation. You know, this is sort of a a legal realist sort of you know thought line, and it's picked up today by people like Professor Shower. You know, what's what's the point of citation? Is there something there, or is this just decoration? Is this you know, is this just kind of an aesthetic? And then the paired question is, well, what does it mean if you don't cite to anything? You know, and so if we have these sort of legal realist kind of skeptical ideas about the value of citation, you know, what's happening when there is none? And, you know, legal writing 
you know, if there's anything that distinguishes it besides, you know, style, style points for precision or clarity, you know, there's this idea that legal writing is tied to authority, that it's, uh, you know, that the, your selection of precedent should be wise and good and that it should kind of, you know, frame your own argument. And so when there is no authority, you know, you kind of wonder, is this, is this legal reasoning at all? You know, is this, is this law kind of what's happening here? And so the Levesque opinion, is, it's intriguing because it hasn't been cited very much, but it's been cited by a few people other than Judge Selya himself. And so, you know, there is a, there is some kind of, it has, you know, over time, you know, first principles about black letter negligence doctrine. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, that's one, that's one of the things I loved about it so much though, is like, he like explains that there are no citations in the opinion because they would be superfluous because the principles at stake are so well established that there's no reason to cite to precedent because any precedent, I guess in a sense would almost like cloud the waters in a way. Yeah. So there's this kind of feeling that, you know, he's doing something aesthetic, you know, that there's a kind of a beauty here and it's a little bit ironic, but if you were to include a case citation, it would sort of subvert what he's trying to achieve here, which is to write this, you know, kind of intriguing citationless opinion that is, you know, informed by the law, but it's not, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not botched by it or, you know, the, the citations don't distract from the reading experience. So in your paper, you also kind of use... Ronald Dworkin's metaphor of Judge Hercules, as it were, as the sort of model judge who presumably would write the model opinions. So, to, you know, to the best of your ability, sort of thinking through Dworkin, as it were, what kind of opinion would Dworkin's Judge Hercules produce? Yeah, yeah. So the um, as as I as I was writing this, and and I was trying to sort of you know, find a kind of a, a, a normative way to, to frame my kind of descriptive conclusions here. I was thinking, you know, this to me, this sort of echoes the work of Dworkin and his idea that, you know, we can locate the principles in the law, you know, that this is not a, you know, to cite back to Judge Posner, that we're not just coming up with a, like a law need con theory outside of the law that tells us the best policy outcome, but we're sort of searching for the principles within it. And even though we might not be citing to specific case law for these principles that they're sort of there, they kind of permeate and it's kind of uh, informing what we're doing, or at least what the, what judge Hercules um, should do. And so, you know, uh, Dworkin, I think that he cited to the, the Riggs versus Palmer case, the, the famous 19th century case about the, uh, the, the, the boy that kills his uncle to collect the estate or his great uncle, something kind of like that. And, uh, and there, there's a few cases that are cited. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, uh, I, I think that there's just sort of a, a kind of a conundrum here, Brian, that I, I don't really form my own clear conclusion on, you know, is this a good thing to cite to absolutely nothing? Um, you know, is, is, the, is the ideal judge going to, you know, write a purely first principle opinion that doesn't cite to any case law? Or should it be um, you know, should there still be some case citations to sort of anchor it and let the reader know that, 
legal reasoning is just is different somehow from pure philosophizing. But uh, you know, it's a it's a deep question, and it's one that I I try to broach in the paper. But I don't know if I have my own really firm idea of of what perfection <laughs> means here. <laughs> well, so reading the paper, I kind of got the impression there are almost like two related but distinct categories of perfect opinions. And one was like the Holmes descent in Lochner or in Abrams, uh, the, or kind of, I, I couldn't help but think of some of Justice Douglas's descents in sort of the same category as well, right? And, and incidentally, as an aside, um, the Holmes descent was actually was written at the last minute because the the uh, the Harlan dissent was actually originally the majority opinion and an unknown justice changed his vote at the last minute, making Peckham the majority vote. Oh, and so, wow. Yeah, and so the, the the opinions were actually switched, and so Holmes kind of dashed off his his dissenting opinion at the last minute, um, which I, you know. It's, you kind of feel it like that, right? Yeah. Like it's something he wrote in like half an hour sitting in his chair or something. Um, but, but you know, the other kind of perfect opinion is like the Justice Jackson Youngstown uh, concurrence, right? And it, it seems like they're, they're, they have certain structural similarities, but very different kind of aesthetic qualities. And I wonder if you could just briefly kind of compare those two and talk about how you think they relate to each other in in relation to how judges think about the kind of perfectness or the aesthetic qualities of a judicial opinion so yeah with uh, uh with with justice jackson in youngstown sheet you know there's certainly a rigor to it there's an organization he puts forward the three-part test where he speaks to the sort of ebbs and peaks of executive power. And he even refers back to moments or events in American history, almost as precedent to draw wisdom from. And so, um, you know, it's studied and erudite in that way, even though it doesn't necessarily have in-text citations. Whereas Lochner, the, the Lochner descent from Justice Holmes, as you say, and I agree, it's sort of this kind of spontaneous thinking about, you know, how do we think about, uh, you know, the role of, of, of government to decide, you know, should we have bakeries that are open a certain amount of time, you know, that kind of speaks to this idea of, you know, what is, what does the fifth amendment mean when we think about, um, about liberty? And so, you know, both these opinions are share this kind of, uh, citationless form even though um, one of them has its own kind of internal logic, whereas the other one reads almost as a personal letter to a friend or a diary entry. Yeah, no, no, I think that's, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean, in terms of thinking about what those judicial preferences tell us about the concept of perfection in in an opinion. I wonder if like in closing, you could reflect a little bit or kind of what do you think about the relationship between kind of perfection and quality in opinions? I mean, is a perfect opinion a good opinion? And are judges like kind of in a position where they have to choose to sacrifice one for the other? Or are those qualities in some way 
complementary or at least potentially complementary? So I think on the, you know, the question of sort of pure style about just being a, an elegant, effortless style, stylish writer, you know, those are, I, I would hope, sort of ideals that, that all judges might kind of chase for. As far as this sort of notion of the Herculean opinion being citationless or think or, uh, you know, being able to distill these principles that, that kind of percolate in our case law, this is a, this is a, different question and I think it's a tough one to answer. And so, you know, in in the paper I, I mentioned how there's sort of this this kind of polarity where, you know, if I assume that each year clerks, you know, um when they begin their tenure with their judge, you know, they learn that it's it's good to write a or good to draft a an opinion where it, it begins by summarizing the facts of the case and how they prompt a question presented and that you should move through your argument by citation to reasoned authority to justify the, the moves that you make. And, and this is, can be a good or a great opinion to do this. And then we have these perfect opinions, which seem to, as in the Holmes Lochner dissent, kind of do away with all that, you know? And, and one question we might ask is, you know, first, what happens if you're, if you're not necessarily um, Justice Holmes, or if you're a young Judge Holmes before he's reached his prime, you know, what does it, what does it look like when you're kind of, um, not there yet, or, you know, what does it look like if you're, if you're trying for perfection, but you just don't succeed? And so that's a, that's sort of a curious kind of question to ask. And we can ask if, if, if judges do, do seek perfection and fail. And then kind of the, another jurisprudential question we might kind of think about is, is just sort of, uh, the culture of authority and the culture of what kind of sources that we might cite to. And so, again, this is something that, um, Professor Schauer thinks a little bit about in, in other legal philosophers. You know, I think that a few decades ago, you know, it was uh, pretty much a shared intuition that good legal authority was, you know, prior case law from your jurisdiction or from other celebrated courts or judges and maybe from great scholars. Uh, you know, today, you know, the question of what's a source of authority might not be so obvious. We're kind of in a, a time of fissure. And so, you know, if it's unclear whether social science or uh, foreign authority from a foreign jurisdiction, if, we, if we're not sure what counts as authority anymore, that by citing to what we think, you know, is first principles by putting forward a citationless opinion, I sort of speculate on, on whether there might be some problems here. Because, you know, it used to, there used to be a pretty clear understanding of what authority was. And if today we don't know what good authority is, well, we're not citing to anything, maybe there is some, you know, some concern. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Andrew. The paper's fantastic. Congratulations. And uh, it was really a pleasure talking to you about it. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. Uh... Most Wanted Music
the bright lights down on Washington. As she filled the ketchup jars, she looked to him like the rising sun. Shut him down on his dark star, shining for the blood. 